Welcome, white men warriors, to Practicing the Pillars podcast, where every airman is a leader. When you lead yourself first, others will line up to follow. I'm Chaplain Captain Bill Petrie, here with our 509th Chapel Superintendent, Master Sergeant Kevin Dilley, and a very special guest, the Honor Guard Training Director, Technical Sergeant Jeremy Rutherford. Sergeant Rutherford, thank you so much for being with us today. You've got quite the story. Why don't we go ahead and just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, we'll just launch right in. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Name's Jeremy Rutherford, Tech Sergeant. I'm a 442nd Reservist. I've been working with the Honor Guard off and on for about six years. I'm married. I have a 10-year-old daughter. I'm a software engineer on the outside, a UTM by AFSC. And uh, if they would let me retire from Honor Guard, I would. Awesome. That is awesome. So you like the honor guard? Oh, it's the best job in the Air Force. That is great. So um, best job in the Air Force didn't come easily for you to get to this place in your life. You've had a significant amount of setbacks and some really emotional things in your life. Why don't you tell us a little bit about just some of those early things that really played an influence in your life? Yeah. So as a kid... I went through physical, mental abuse. My mom thought it was normal. Grew up just that way. Uh, I was afraid of my friends' moms, not their dads. Their dads were always cool, Mm. playing video games on the Nintendo or whatever. But moms, they always, you know, that's the person you don't don't make mad. But uh, moving on from that, I, I left home at a young age. I graduated when I was 16 and left home right before I turned 18. And it didn't work out. I had no marketable skills. Uh, I'd sat on my butt playing video games after I graduated, so mm. it didn't exactly work out. It's tough mm. to make money doing that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then me and my mom had a falling out, so I had no support. My dad lived eight hours away, four hours away, somewhere in between there. I'm longer if you walk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that on, on Google Maps, if you have it set to walk. It'll you tell you. Walmart, like, whoa, that is far. Oh, oh. Not okay. the one in Texas. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I ended up for a short period of time, I was uh, homeless, couch surfing where I could, sleeping in my car where I couldn't, and uh, playing guitar and singing for, for tips on the side of the street. Wow. Um, That's a somewhat marketable skill. It became marketable, yeah. Yeah, I learned, I learned how to play guitar for my church uh, when I was 14 to 15. Actually, now my brother-in-law is the one who, who taught me. Uh, he married my sister, not the other way around. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I learned how to play guitar, uh, start develop my voice and made money that way. And it was enough to get by. Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't have any bills or anything like that. I was living in a car, yeah. but enough, enough to fly by the seat of my pants, so to speak. But yeah, it was a, it was a, a fun time really having to live off the generosity of others. Yeah. So how'd you end up in the air force? Push came to shove and I was running out of couches to surf on. So I hit up, actually, I started with a local guard recruiter. I wanted to stay in the area for reasons, (laughs) why anybody joins the guard or reserve, I guess, and about a six-month waiting period, but I had scored uh, significantly high on the ASVAB, 
And so I went next door to the reserve recruiter and he got me a tech school or a basic training date in two weeks. Oh, nice. So I was like, all right, cool. I've got a way to get, get some money. I've got a way to develop a skill. And I enlisted as a civil engineer power production troop. Wow. So how'd that go for you? I don't want to disparage the job, but it's not for me. Okay. I'm That's a good way to put it. I'm a much more technical person. And in the reserves, we don't usually have a lot of equipment. We got to go TDY to get any kind of hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, so very quickly it became... Uh, a boring weekend job. Tech school was awesome. I learned a lot about, you know, internal combustion engines and stuff I didn't already know. It was great. I did fantastic. But yeah, it's not a not an engaging job for me. So I've heard your story in the past, and I'm just going to launch right into some of the most difficult things, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, I think you have seen some things that would cripple most people. And um, you, you found yourself in a hole and you began to figure out a way to dig out of that, and things like that don't ever go away. But let's just get to this one event that is probably, I'm guessing, the most significant loss of your life at this point in your life. Can you just walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so a small small amount of background. I'm one of 10 kids. Six of us were in the same home, and my immediate younger brother, uh, Dalton was his name. He's about six years younger than me, and... In 2012, I had just got back from Afghanistan on my first deployment. I was going through a divorce. My daughter was turning two. And within the span of three weeks, we had a divorce, a birthday, and then just a couple days later, uh, I lost my brother to suicide. My goodness. So a divorce, a birthday of your daughter, and a suicide from your brother. How did you hear about that and what how did that roll out in your mind? At the time, I was working overnights at a factory and... Usually what I did, I was I was working in the town where my brother lived, and I would go st- crash at his place after my shift was over because it was closer than driving all the way back to my town. And that night, my machine went down early. I left, uh, and I took a wrong turn and ended up going home instead of to his place. And the next morning, I didn't have work or anything. I was texting him. Uh, I wasn't getting anything back. We were talking about some TV shows we were watching together. And uh, my sister texted me. Uh, my older sister, and she asked me if I had spoken to my mom that day. And when I told her I hadn't, she told me I needed to call her. And so I did. And when I called her, in my mom's defense, she thought that I already knew. So she was just crying hysterically on the phone, as any mother would. And through her tears, I heard, he's dead. And I didn't know who she was talking about, didn't know if it was my stepdad, didn't know if it was anyone else. Uh, But his face was not the one that came to mind Mm. until she said his name. And the next thing I know, I'm on the ground, uh, I'm crying, i trying to work through all this, trying to figure out what happened. They lived about 45 minutes away at the time. So I was trying to get my thoughts together enough so that I could go to the house. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was a, a rough phone call. Yeah. And an and even rougher next several hours. So you responded to that and to the whole scenario. Um and I, I can't imagine what you were dealing with at that time. I mean, what are a man's thoughts when, when you hear these things? Well, at the time, I actually, I didn't know it was uh, suicide, just that he was gone. And that's about all I could get out of my mom. Uh, me and my sister lived in the same town. I drove around for about 45 minutes in, in town, uh, waiting for my sister to tell me she was ready to go and I was going to drive her up. Her husband at the time was in the police academy. He actually left to come pick her up and drove us both. Uh, to the house, which actually saved me in the long run as that delay, uh, when I when we arrived at the location, the coroners had just, just removed his body. 
So I didn't have to see him in place. I didn't, I didn't see him until he was reconstructed. Mm. So what was your, what did you feel like your role was at that point? And I was, I was pretty lost. Um, I had no idea what exactly I was going to do. My step siblings were there. All of the siblings that were still in Missouri were there. We were all trying to figure out how to make sense of the turmoil. Mm -hmm. And uh, me and my brother-in-law both ended up, uh, we, we had to clean the mess. So we tidied the room, we cleaned up the blood, removed the mattress, the chairs, all that, got all the furniture mm-hmm. spotless so my mom wouldn't have to see it. Mm-hmm. But that became kind of our job while we were there. Uh, we couldn't afford a hazmat crew or anything like that to, to come in and clean up. So. Do you think that was, that, was that helpful, do you think, to have something to do or was it more traumatizing? Um, to have something to do, yes. And ultimately it became almost almost cathartic. It was a way to find the closure to almost skip past that denial stage uh, that I'd been in up until then. Like, this is real. This is the aftermath, and it's my responsibility. He's my brother. I'm going to take care of this. So we did. We, we took care of it, and no one else had to. Was that an emotional experience, or did you just kind of, was it just walking through it? Uh, I can't imagine. It, it became almost robotic. After a moment, at the beginning, it was difficult to figure out how do I start, how do I do this, how do I, like, it was, it was bad without getting graphic. Uh, it was, it was a lot to clean. We were, we were there for hours. So after a little while, it became emotion. It became just doing it to get it done. Uh, and it, it made it a, a kind of a cold, calculated sort of experience that brought the logic into it and it's not just operating off of emotion were you were you guys talking while you were going through this uh yeah somewhat not not a whole lot um we had uh step siblings uh or siblings would come in and bring us replacement gloves uh more towels that sort of stuff but between us he was he was uh army national guard he had just been deployed as a truck gunner Uh, he'd seen a lot of stuff and cleaned up a lot of stuff as well so not an expert, but experienced mm-hmm. in this. So it became a way for us to get through it. But we really only talked about what we were doing. Yeah. Not about anything up to that point. Yeah. So I'm tracking with you right now. And in my mind, probably for for those listening, our listening audience, I'm probably like them thinking to myself, you just lost your your wife in a divorce, which is really like a living death for so many people and and then you're walking through the suicide of of your best friend um i I assume he's your best friend at this point um how do you begin to go through a process of healing how do you go through that process of picking the pieces back up and figuring out who you are your identity um what you value again and uh how, how do you pick it all back up that's a good question if i knew how i did it i would have some succinct i would have written a book by now if i knew what exactly to do and what works for me i was angry for a long time often through the childhood of abuse i was i had anger issues to begin with mm-hmm. and it it's hard to put into words but i was kind of detached at while at the same time being more emotionally vulnerable with my family than i'd ever been as uh, the the five of us who grew up together r- remained we became very close Uh, because we're all we have. And so I relied on that. I relied on my religious support 
network at the time. Um, music helped a lot, especially playing it, learning new songs that applied to the situation, writing songs. And no, I'm not going to sing them here. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but all the, all the normal coping mechanisms to deal with anything, I think that people, without any professional help, what we use, right? I tried to ignore it. I tried to pretend not that it didn't happen, but that it, it didn't matter like to fast forward a few years to where this is just normal now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still woke up and thought I'd find him in my living room. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that summer he stayed with me the entire summer. Uh, We were best friends. We did everything together, martial arts. We talked about girls. We learned foreign languages. We worked out together. We did everything. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was life changing Mm -hmm. and having just lost my wife and now, losing my brother permanently, it was the loneliest I'd been hmm. um, as I was, I was living alone realistically for the first time since, since I had a place to live Yeah. Uh, after joining the air force. So it was, it was rough. So I, I have two un, unrelated questions. Um, for first one, I think will be fairly quicker to answer. So I'll, I'll ask that when you said you were angry, who, who were you angry at? Who is that anger directed towards? Everyone. I had a very short fuse, uh, very low tolerance for any jokes about suicide, anything like that. Even the, the hand gun to the head thing, like, oh, kill me now type mm-hmm. thing. I had very low tolerance and I'd blow up on people. But in hindsight, I was somewhat angry at myself, blaming myself for taking that wrong turn that night. What could I have done differently? I was mad at my mom for what she'd put us all through uh, that ultimately, in my opinion, led to, led to his final decision. And I was mad at him because he knew how hard life was and he saw it and we talked about it and he still decided to go through with it. So for me, for a long time, I was, I was very angry at him. And about a month after it happened, actually on the, on the one month anniversary, uh, I sent his Facebook page a message, just angry at him. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that message doesn't exist anymore. I I have no way to find it, Mm -hmm. but, uh, put the blame squarely on him. No one else is to blame for his decision. Yeah. And how dare he yeah. leave us. So I was, I was very angry at him. Was that in some way therapeutic to write to him to express that? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think social media gives us the unique opportunity to do something like that. Um, it's not unlike, you know, writing a letter to deal with past trauma and then, you know, throwing in the fire. Right. It's very, very similar and as far as uh, therapeutic. So did he leave a letter? Uh, did he leave any indication of his own processes for his thoughts? Uh, yes. He, he typed a letter and left it on the computer. Uh, the, actually, a police forensics uh, were able to get into his account and found it on his desktop. As far as the reasoning, I've had to put a lot of that up to who I knew him to be and the types of conversations we'd have to figure it out. And he didn't really have anything going wrong in his life at the time he was homeschooled by his own decision, but he addressed each of us siblings and had something nice to say about basically all of us with the exception of like, Hey, don't turn into a bad person. You know, like I see you going down this path. Don't do that to me. He tried, he told me, uh, I'm not as smart as I think I am, Uh, (laughs) but he brought up all the games of chess that we would play and uh, told me flat out like, Hey, you were my best friend. And which that, that hurt, mm-hmm. right? Like you didn't even tell me you were thinking about this. Yeah. But uh, my, when it came to my mom, he had a solid page uh, lambasting her for the way she treated us and how she treated her friends and family. 
um, pushing away anyone who disagreed with her. And it was, it was brutal. Yeah. Um, he didn't outright blame her for anything, but I do know the night before he did it, they had had a, an argument and in the middle of the argument, he shut down mm. and went stone faced and like, okay, okay. And went over and started doing his homework, except it wasn't homework. It was the letter. Typing a letter. So you, I don't know now what your relationship with your mom is. Um, you don't have one, maybe. No. I can imagine the anger towards your mom probably created some rifts. Um, how did she, I mean, how did she respond to hearing all of that? She has a bit of a narcissistic personality. So she made it out to be not her fault, but that he was trying to hurt her specifically. Hmm. That the reason why he was nice to all of us is because he knew she didn't have a good relationship with us. So saying nice things about us and then mean things about her and then killing himself, that that was all somehow out to get her. Um, she's the one who found his body. Uh, thought it was a Halloween prank. It was October 23rd. He was practicing with some makeup or something. Oh, no. And so, yeah. So she snapped. She was, uh, she had had some mental health issues up until that point, but that had that pushed her over the edge right. for sure. So probably her coping mechanism was to to create a, a reality whereby this is this is the way this went down mm -hmm. yeah i'm so sorry and i don't i don't blame her for what happened to him um i do i do still blame her for what she did uh to us specifically but he never saw the half of it by the time he was old enough to remember i was old enough to stand up for myself so it's not it's not as though he even really knew what all she was capable of. Yeah. So my my second question, you've kind of touched on a little, but a lot, oftentimes people who have a loved one or even a coworker, someone who has um, gone through with suicide, they often will try to re repiece it back together and like say themselves, "I should have caught it. I, sh I should have known." Uh, did you find yourself doing that, and did you see that there were any any signs? I didn't, and I actually I actually lost it a little bit during one of our uh, suicide prevention trainings in the Air Force, uh, where they point out all the signs, the giving away things, the withdrawing socially, and all the different signs that come up. I said he didn't have any of these; mm. he didn't have a single one. The one thing that you might be able to point at is he posted the lyrics to a relatively dark song about eight months prior mm -hmm. but he listened yeah. to dark music mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. he was 16 yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's half of our uh so nobody nobody saw that and my mom actually had an, a conversation with me and blamed me for not seeing that and my sister for not seeing that because hey you guys knew he posted this you should have known like right that's half the oh. half the and it was a relatively yeah yeah it was a relatively mild uh, song compared to what we listened to in the nineties. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Screamo. Oh yeah. It was. <laughs> so I, I'm here with you and uh listening audience isn't able to see your face. You don't appear like an angry person. Um, so I can imagine that there has been a journey to walk through this as an event and you as a person, um, healing in your own psyche, in your own emotions, in your, um, in your soul, can, can you speak to anything that would, um, you know, 
you're not angry, at least on the surface, you're not angry. <laughs> you're not, uh, you don't look like you're ready to snap. And, uh, you know, what, what did it take to, to get through this? Um, you mentioned some things, um, music, you mentioned you had some religious friends and, and so forth that you turned to, you mentioned family. Was there something in your own mind or, or a period in your mind where you, you began to just start walking things out and you begin to say, okay, I'm beginning to cope. I'm beginning to understand. I'm beginning to forgive myself for what I didn't do. I'm beginning to forgive my, my brother. Um, it, was, there a, was there a process that way? I think it's about about three years after the fact, I finally let go of the blame. Mm. Right. I stopped trying to play the blame game. I didn't blame my mom. I didn't blame my siblings and I didn't blame myself, which was the last to go. Right. Mm. It was, I, I came to the realization that no matter what, like all the what ifs, no matter what, it was his decision. And whether that was as a result of some un- undiagnosed mental illness or the reasoning that I came up with for it, which exploring it over the years, I've come to the conclusion that he was just morbidly fascinated with afterlife. And he wasn't convinced in any of the mainstream religions or anything like that. And life was hard. Mm-hmm. Everyone around him was struggling, going through divorces. Uh, his mom was on her fifth husband at the time. And he decided, he, why live through all this and then get to the next life when I could just go there now? Mm-hmm. So less anger-induced and more, I guess, despair mm-hmm. at, hey, this life, it, it sucks. What about the next one? Let's go find that out. And once I kind of realized that, then there there aren't signs, right? Everything around him was Mm -hmm. the sign. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that we made bad decisions and we had to live with the consequences. The the problem there is, you know, he life was bad and he didn't give it an opportunity to be good. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have a lot of examples around him of life being good. So, I mean, I'd like to think now he'd be super proud of me. But I'll never know, or may never know, I should yeah. say. But yeah, that, that I would say you may not know in this life. That's how I would personally leave that. Who knows? But the the part that really helped me was when I stopped focusing on the what ifs. Right, my TI used to say, "What if worms had machine guns? <laughs> then birds wouldn't mess with them." <laughs> right, you can't live your life by what ifs. I'm gonna I'm gonna start using that. I love it. I use it <laughs> at least once a week. <laughs> so I, I stopped focusing on the what ifs. I stopped focusing on what could have been and started focusing on what was right in front of me, mm-hmm. right? My family, my daughter, and I started investing into those relationships because I don't know how long I have. I don't know how long they have. Nothing is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make the best of the time that I have with them right now. Yeah. So if you have an airman who's dealing with similar thoughts as your brother, what would you say to him? I haven't had anyone ask that question. I don't know. I, I had similar thoughts myself before my brother. When the divorce started, I was, I was pretty tore up. I was, you know, 3,000 miles away. There was nothing I could do to fix the situation, right? I'm a CE troop. I fix things. Mm-hmm. Let me fix things. And I couldn't. And it was completely out of my control. And... There's nothing that anybody said to me that helped, right? It was me saying things to other people, and then they kept an eye on me. 
Mm. I said, Hey, I'm not doing good. And they said, all right. And they assigned somebody essentially to, to stick by me to make sure that nothing untoward happened. And I wasn't, I was more worried that I would hurt somebody else at the time. Just somebody says the wrong thing. And my fuse is already so short uh, that I'd, I'd haul off and punch some captain or something. And thank, thank goodness I didn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would not be here, but it was, it was a, it was a scary time. And so for people that are going through this, I know from my own studies into the topic, the, you get a sort of tunnel vision where all you can see is this one solution and that you're a burden and that the only way to alleviate that burden is to die and that people wouldn't really, they might be sad, but they wouldn't really care. And to that, I have to say, I have an, an incredibly large family and we care. It is, there is nothing worse than losing somebody before their time. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just hold, hold on, say something to someone. Yeah. And say something to those that matter the most to you because chances are you matter the most to them. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you can go say something to a therapist. You can go say something to a chaplain. But if they don't even know who you are, it's not going to impact you mm-hmm. the same way that talking to your best friend will. Yeah. And you'll see how big of an impact you actually have and seeing the hundreds of people that showed up to his funeral in a tiny little town in Missouri, it, it from all, and they came from all over. It, it was inspiring and it definitely let me see that like, Hey, I am, I am so glad that I did not put my family through this. Yeah. And so as, as far as if you're going through this, if you're thinking about this, you just talk, just open up. It's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. It's not going to go negatively. Just talk. Yeah. That's, that's an incredible piece of advice that you matter, that you matter and that you matter for those that, that care for you, that you matter for, for your family. You matter for your airmen. You, you matter. And you um, matter for people who you probably don't even wouldn't think that you matter to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So in, in this last, so you said it three years after the event is when you began to start to reconcile your thoughts uh, differently. What's, what's life been like for you since, since those three years? Um, I know that it's not like you go through a divorce and you, you, you lose your brother and then all of a sudden things just start turning around. I know it doesn't work that way. That's, that's fantasy. Uh, so what, what did things look like after that for you? Now you're a, a tech sergeant in the military and leading troops and doing great things. Those things don't come overnight. What, uh, tell us a little bit about that journey. Part of it is I, I was, I was six years older than my brother. Right. So while we were peers, like I was, I had already deployed, been married and got a divorce by the time he passed away and he was still in high school. So I had a lot of life experience there and I became for the, especially those first three years, I became very withdrawn. I didn't talk about it to people outside of my, you know, close group of family. And eventually I landed a job working for the honor guard. And that is still one of the most impressive coincidences ever 
I was on orders working for a group commander. We lost funding for that position, and I had no job. Tomorrow, no job. All right, what do I do now? So I was walking out of my office with a box of goodies and pens and, you know, whatever I had collected along the way. And our PA officer popped his head out of his office and said, hey, are you looking for a job? <laughs> Shout out to uh, whatever your rank is now, Jeff Kelly. Uh, he was captain last time I saw him, but he could totally be a major by now. And he, uh, he said, hey, yeah, Honor Guard's hiring. They had just had a vacancy open that day. And so I, in two weeks, I was working at Honor Guard. And I had just put on staff sergeant. I hadn't had an airman yet assigned to me. Reserves, our power pro shop was like down to two people, me as a senior airman and a, a master sergeant. Like I had nothing to go off of. And so I was thrown into the mix with 40 airmen as a staff sergeant, as the only staff sergeant. Mm. And I had to learn quick how to be a leader. And in almost all of them, especially at that time, I saw my brother. I saw what he could have become. Mm had he given it a chance. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of made it my mission to, to help them all, not just to be the most proficient ceremonial guardsman they can, but to help them grow and to go through uh, life without having to make all the mistakes the first time, right? Reinvent the wheel, mm-hmm. right? I've got a lot of wheels. You can just borrow mine. You don't have to come up with one on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of, the airmen became my mission and not, just the funerals, right? The funerals are obviously the important part, but the airmen, to me, they are the mission, not just the tool to do the mission. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Honor Guard, you do a lot of funerals. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you? At, at first, I really wasn't sure how it would go. Um, I remember my first funeral was an active duty funeral. I had to present a flag to a uh, something like an eight-year-old next of kin. Wow. Um that, that was that was hard. And it's still probably the hardest one I've done. Mm. And I, I've presented to kids since then. I've done about nine or ten active duty funerals over the last six years, which is actually a really low number, and I'd like to keep it that low. Mm-hmm. I hope I never have to do one again. Mm-hmm. It's um, uniquely impactful. But it's sort of like when I go to a funeral, I kind of I remember my brother's funeral, right? Obviously, it's the, the most real uh, funeral I've been to, even when my dad one day passes away, right? It's going to, I'm going to see it coming probably, hopefully. And I don't think it's going to hit me the same way that an out of the blue, your best friend, 16 years old, it wasn't even a car accident. We have no one to blame, but him, I don't think it's going to hit me the same way. So I see these funerals and I remember how I felt like I was spinning out of control and we had no, no structure, nothing solid to grab onto. We were just searching for answers And then I think most of the funerals we do are right now we're hitting, we're still hitting world war two vets that are passing Mm -hmm. away. We're still hit. We're obviously still hitting Vietnam vets that are passing away. These, these gentlemen and ladies have lived a long time. Wow. In comparison. And many of them have been married for, you know, 50 plus years and now their life partner is gone. I can't imagine anything more whirlwind Mm -hmm. than that. Just, spiraling out of control and the honor guard is there as the most stable structure around them. So as they reach out to grab something, they're going to find us. And I have heard it countless times from even people who come and join the honor guard because when they were kids, they saw an honor guard at the granddad's funeral. Mm 
yeah. or something like that, they may not ever remember the eulogies and the kind words or anything else that goes on. But what they do remember is the honor guard. Yeah. And you represent to them a, a life of, of significance, a life of sacrifice, a life of honor. And, and that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest programs that our military has to honor those who serve. And, um, so I want to just say thank you for taking that seriously. And I think you represent us well. I think you represent those that, that fight well. And uh, I just really appreciate that. So we've got about uh, just a few more minutes left. And we started this this off bookending from the front with this song from Switchfoot, Souvenirs. Can you tell us a little bit about this song? Why... Um, why did you want to use this song to uh, to encapsulate this podcast? So I had I had a different song when all this went down. Souvenirs and a song called uh, Zero by Hawk Nelson, both released in 2012, the same year that my brother passed away. And I didn't know about Souvenirs for a, a while after I'd say maybe six six months to a year after his funeral, and I didn't I didn't even know the song existed. It was so obscure. Yeah. And I believe it's on their Vice Versus album for anybody looking to look it up. Not a sponsor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, the first song was very angry. It, it is written from a perspective of somebody who just lost someone even just a few weeks ago. And it is very angry. And I used that a lot and because I was angry. And when I discovered Souvenirs, it wasn't until, like, yeah, the song impacted me. It made me, it made me sad, made me really relive some memories, some emotions. Mm -hmm. But now when I look at it, that song is about so much more than loss. And what it is about is it's the souvenirs. It's the memories. It's what you take away, the good times, all the best things about that person, the, the things that you choose to carry forward with you through the rest of your life. That's awesome. Well, so Jelly, any, any last questions for our guest? And no, I, I again, I want to echo what uh, Chaplain Petrie said. Thank you for your service and thank you for uh, sharing your story. I know that this is a, something that would be difficult for anyone to go through, and I would just encourage anyone who's out there who, uh, like Sergeant Rutherford said, if you are struggling, please reach out and get help. If if for nobody else, then for those who who love you. Absolutely. Any last words, Sergeant Rutherford? Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, it's, I've pardoned the pun, but it's been an honor. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been pun. our privilege. And uh, I'm Chaplain Captain Petrie, joined with Sergeant Dilly and Sergeant Rutherford. And we're out.